Places, everyone, places. We are at places. Welcome to Waiting for Places. Today we have David McGraw. Hello, thank you for having me. Hello. So I'm going to dive right into my first question, which is tell me your life story. Where did you grow up? Why did you choose stage management? What led you to this moment, March 12th, 2021? All right. And with that, we've lost half your listeners. Uh, So... (laughs) How would I put it this way? I'll tell a little bit of my background, but I want to set it perhaps in contrast to how other stage managers might find their way and maybe even generationally. So I perhaps I should lead with, I'm 48 years old uh, and knowing that how I got into stage management may not be as a clear path today. There might be better paths. So it is interesting to see where some people came from as other people are launching careers. So having said that, I uh, was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, so a Midwesterner from birth, very proud. Uh, East side, by the way, if you're from Cleveland, East versus West does matter. At any rate, so unlike uh, perhaps a number of stage managers, I did not come from an arts-based family at all. Uh, No one in my family was involved in the arts. It was something that I never did summer camps that were involved in the arts whatsoever, Uh, I only discovered theater through school. Uh, And so I first encountered theater and really not until high school. Uh, I went to a very small uh, uh, elementary school. So in high school, I went to a Jesuit school. Uh, It was all boys high school. And there was a group called the Off Center Troop. And that name could not be more apt. Uh, In my first year, so as as a first year student in high school, we did Edward Albee's The Zoo Story. And we did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So this was not the Godspell, Neil Simon. No, there was nothing audience friendly about the work we were doing. Uh, I have no idea how we got away with this at a, as a Catholic high school, um, but we did. Yes. I, I have questions. I'm pretty sure there are women in a zoo story and there's definitely a woman in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but you went to an all boys school. Right, uh, so imported. Uh, okay. So, so it was a, uh, it was part of, um, it wasn't necessarily a class, it was an after school project, and there was a much more traditional uh, theater group, but we were definitely the off center group. Uh, and so to get hooked that way, uh, was just really fascinating where later on, folks would mention all these shows and be like, I never heard of them. Uh, that must be commercially successful. Why would I be interested in that? But it's something that that got me and I would say that the moment in my life that I decided that theater was always going to be central was my junior year of high school. I saw a production of Hamlet, uh, but I saw it done just out of the love of theater. This was a group of professional actors uh, who wanted to do the show, got permission to really do essentially a storefront version. I believe there were about 25, maybe 30 seats They did the entire play, so three and a half hours or so. Uh, And uh, there must have been a budget of no more than $200. It was just out of the love of the work. And at that moment, I was like, that's it. That's that's all I need. Uh, And I would say that definitely has influenced the type of theater that I've been drawn to, uh, very much on the, the spoken word, very much on that intimate, connection with the audience 
and so that's something that I, I've always pursued. I went off to college and I was not ready yet to make the commitment career-wise. Um, instead, I chose a very profitable uh, career path of classical languages. So I studied Latin and Greek in college. Uh, what I will say is that it really allowed me to, again, have a love of, of language, but also to, strangely enough, see a broader perspective of the world. Uh, if you ever have a chance to read uh, what now we call the classics, really, though, it was such a broader understanding of human nature, uh, of sexuality, of gender orientation, of political spectrums. And so to get that early um, really was a great foundation. But I realized in college uh, here, okay, so do we, do you have like sound effects when people say really geeky things? So put one in now. Um, I told a joke in class, in a Greek class, but I told it in German because it was funnier that way about an archeology span uh, dig for Troy. And people thought it was hilarious. Like it was, it was really good. But I looked around the room and I was like, all right, so there's like 13 people in this state who probably got that joke. I, I need a bigger audience. So, uh, so that was when I went, you know, this is the leap of faith. Um, even though my family had no background whatsoever, uh, I was gonna make the arts my career, make my path. So uh, from there, I went uh, to grad school. So uh, college, I went to Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass. Uh, I immediately went to graduate school, which I don't recommend. I went to uh, Yale, which was a great experience, but uh, the financial burden was extreme. And I saw my classmates make decisions about the jobs they would take based on paying off their student debt. I left after one year uh, and I went back to support my family. And I actually ended up having greater flexibility in the shows that I could take the projects that I would take on. Uh, so I think graduate school is great if you don't have the network or if you need to prove to yourself that you can play on the big field. And that's what it did for me. I really, again, coming from a smaller college, didn't know anyone, didn't know if I could make it. And in my first year meeting John Guare for a show he was developing, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess I made it. And that was what it accomplished for me. Uh, moving from there, uh, here's the whole life story, folks. Uh, so from graduate school, uh, I once I dropped out, I immediately joined the union uh, and I started getting work. I was very fortunate that way to get my union card at 23 as a stage manager. And actually within the first six months, something that I'm fairly certain would never happen today uh, I got my first resident Lort position. Uh, it was a and matter- this was back in Ohio? Cause you said you went back to your family. Oh, actually, so uh, I, at that point I also was married uh, because you know, Midwesterner. Uh, I got married uh, right after college as I was going into graduate school. And uh, so actually I was, at that point it was working, uh, my wife at the time had, was working in Albany, New York. So I was in Albany. Uh, and got a position at the Capitol Repertory Theater in Albany. And it was really kind of two factors. One, I took off any reference to my age whatsoever. I grew out a huge beard. Um, anything I could do to look older uh, than 23. 
And two, I was just a persistent little bulldog and went to every event they had, every backstage tour, post-show discussion, and just kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. And then when a stage manager uh, had to leave a project, they thought, well, let's just give it to this McGraw guy so we can advertise it for real. And I did a good enough job that they kept me on from there. So I recognized that I had so much luck, um, so much privilege at that moment to be able to land a position at 23 where suddenly I could afford to be a stage manager. I, I could take it on because I was looking at, I think at that point, a 42 week contract. I mean, just suddenly to, to kind of hit all the kind of ways that you could think about successful careers, especially for someone who didn't come from the arts, to be able to, to tell my, my parents of, look, look, I have a job and it's gonna last more than six weeks. Uh, so that certainly kind of elevated me at that early step. And then, so, but how did you get from, cause I knew you, well, I first knew of you when you were in Iowa. So how did you get from Albany, New York out to Iowa? You had to cross a time zone and a river and some right, mountains. Right, had to make it back to the promised land. So I have, in my career, I have lived in 10 different states. I have made major moves uh, over 15 times. So from New York, uh, I then did a little work in Colorado uh, over at the Villar Center, which is in Beaver Creek, uh, so near Vail. Um, beautiful, beautiful location. Uh, didn't feel at home at all though there, just wasn't home. Um, it was a place where there were no uh, street lights because when you're that wealthy, you shouldn't have to wait for anyone was apparently the view. Uh, I did not have a helicopter. And so when the roads washed out, I just didn't do anything. Um, and so after a few months there, um, it, was, it was a lovely experience, but it just felt like I was living on the moon. Uh, from there, then I went to uh, Jiva Theater Center, which is in Rochester, New York. Had a great time there. Um, in this span of time, if for those following at home, uh, I also got divorced. And then I got uh, married. So I had a rehearsal marriage, and then I have my real marriage now. Uh, and my wife and I then, uh, once we got married, we uh, ventured into academia. I took a one-year position at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, and I was both the production stage manager and the production manager, which was such a lousy idea. Uh, I was essentially telling myself no all day long because uh, I would be doing the quality control and the budgets. Uh, and so after a year of that, I took on a position as the production stage manager at the University of Iowa. Uh, so that is then the beginning of the Iowa years. I was at the University of Iowa for 14 years. Uh, and loved the experience. It was uh, something where I could stage manage. There was a summer company, uh, an equity company, Iowa Summer Rep. And then uh, during the academic year, I'd often stage manage one show under uh, a waiver to bring students up and to see how I was operating. And then I could mentor students. And the University of Iowa, while I was there, was producing between 22 and 25 shows per year. So with a graduate program of four to seven stage managers. Uh, and so, yeah, just great, great opportunities. And did you have to finish grad school in order to work in academia? I, anytime I see those 
job, they're like, you have to have an MFA. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm good at my job. Right, right. So uh, here's a, a perspective on that. And I'll tell you how I worked through the system or around the system. I really fought about, fought against those job descriptions early on. Cause I was like, you know, like how many shows do I need to have on my resume? How many theaters, how, how many names, how many, what it ultimately came down to was it was, as it was explained to me as we're not actually hiring you to be a stage manager. We're hiring you to be a teacher. And so we need to see your teaching credentials in the same way that you would never hire someone who only had academic work to lead a major professional company. Um, it, there, there's different skill sets. So I uh, picked up a master's. Uh, after I dropped out of Yale, I picked up a master's from Goucher uh, College, which is just outside Baltimore. Uh, it was online though, back before we had Zoom or anything else. So this was lousy phone calls and like chat boards and oh, at any rate. So I made it through that. And then uh, I was also very fortunate that I talked to the folks in at the University of Iowa to let me finish out an MFA. Uh, so I was never taking classes with my students. That would be rather awkward. Uh, but instead I was taking courses in the College of Business or art history courses, things that could round out some of the classes that I did not finish up either at Yale or I had not taken at Goucher. So I, I guess I would say I'd get both sides of the equation that do you really need an MFA to teach? You should, but the problem is that so many MFA programs don't teach you how to teach. They focus more on how to stage manage. And so I personally would like to see more graduate programs, more MFA programs. If you're saying that you're preparing folks to become professors, then you ought to offer courses in that because uh, there's so many skills that you just have to pick up these other ways of um, working with students with differing needs and abilities and accommodations, uh, working within the bureaucracy of a large institution, uh, and let alone simple things like grading and uh, appropriate uh, content distribution methods. Uh, so, so yeah, how, how to kind of work both sides of that. I also feel like as a field, we are how to say it? Are we maturing or are we just aging? Ooh, uh, are we fossilizing here? I feel like when I started off teaching now 19 years ago, there were a lot more positions out there that did not require an MFA um, just because there weren't that many MFA programs or weren't that, that many graduates of those MFA programs. Whereas nowadays, pretty much everything, even to be an adjunct, they're now looking, you know, if you're hired to teach a single course, oftentimes they have to uh, require. And it's part of their accreditation. If they have instructors that don't have those degrees, they essentially are dinged by their um, accreditation bodies and uh, lose their rankings. So I get it. Parts of it, I feel like it's more ticking off boxes than actually training people to be good teachers. But that's how the system, as I have, has, as it has been explained to me, Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that, but first, because I, I think it's fascinating, but first, how did you get from Iowa to where you are right now, which is North Carolina? North Carolina, Carolina. yeah. No, I really am a Midwesterner, Katrina. So um, <laughs> let's talk more about You're the leaving. Iowa years. But, 
But uh, so I am currently at Elon University in uh, which is between Greensboro and Burlington, North Carolina. Uh, and I am loving it here. Uh, for one thing, it's a young, scrappy university. Uh, it's growing. It, I, I, and it's weird, I can say young. The university is actually 100 years old plus, but uh, it burned down early on. And uh, really, it was this tiny little regional school, uh, 1,500 students, 2,000 students tops, until about 10, 15 years ago, where they just kind of bet everything like you know push all your chips into the center of the table and they said you know what this is what we're going to do we're going to become the school for studying abroad and so forget about an endowment we're going to buy property all around the world and we're going to structure all of our majors so that any student can go abroad and we're going to build up all these centers so now this little school truly this little little regional school suddenly had a villa in Florence, it had flats in London, apartments in Beijing. And so then when students would study abroad, they were also still part of Elon. Like they were seeing there was this, this house there. And they also have a, a house out in LA and apartments in New York. And they really kind of said, you know, like we want to push students out and we want them to see the world. And it just paid off. I mean, it, like it, it could have just bankrupt the school. And they would be stuck with all this property in all these far-fledged areas of the world. And instead, it's now the leading U.S. school. 86% of our students study abroad. Um, and those that don't, it's often because of other opportunities that they want to take on. So, um, you know, I love that they took all this risk uh, and they really kind of made it central to their identity and trying to, instead of trying to be a little of everything, they just said, let's just be the best at one thing. And then we can see how we can grow afterwards. So, so that drew me there. Um, and I also have to say that. So that drew me there. And also it was the right time for me. Uh, having been at the University of Iowa for 14 years, I was feeling as though I had achieved what I could achieve. And I didn't want to be that guy who was sitting around waiting to retire. I was visited by a former student and she asked, so what cool new things are you trying this year? And I looked at her, I was like, oh, I need to leave. I'm not doing anything new this year. This is awful. Like, when did I become that? So, so that was sort of the wake up call of, you know, if I can't, if I can't continually improve, like, right, any of us, when we're working on shows, it's always like each day, the show's gonna get better, right? I, I have to believe, I have to believe it's possible. Maybe we don't achieve it, but every day I show up thinking, okay, how do we make, maybe it's a little more efficient, maybe it's a little stronger connection, something. And it had gotten to the point where, yeah, I was going, this is good. This is good enough. And, and that's when you know that you're done. Right. And so was what appealed to you about Elon? Because as you're describing students going abroad, I'm like, I wish I had done that. But also, how do you do that in a theater program? Are you sending them to do theater in China? And yeah, yeah we are. And we, we, the, if you study acting, you go to London and we have a partner school in London. Uh, I send students to Florence because there's a great music festival. So you learn how to manage uh, that festival. Uh, partners in Cape Town and working with their theater scene. Uh, Ireland, there's a storytelling focus uh, and sort of performance arts based. So yeah, I mean, this was also part of the expense of 
So where do we find these partners? Do we trust these partners to train our students? And how do we make it part of our curriculum to say, we're gonna back off and not teach this because we know our students are gonna learn it this other place. And it really is kind of opening it up instead of saying, you all that you learn is gonna be within our four walls. So um, yeah, it is, I will say it's difficult. Uh, and it's, as an instructor, it's hard to stay in contact you know, right now we have a changeover of some of the faculty that we use out in LA. So now I wanna to talk to more to see are, are the students getting the right experiences or at least the experiences that we can build on when they get back. Cause that's the one thing we didn't want it to be with like go away, come back and suddenly you're supposed to acclimate yourself. We really have this reacclimation program of now what did you learn and what do you wanna apply here that you're back on campus? But I also think it, it helps them break out the sense that college is some sort of ivory tower and you're in this bubble. And instead it's just, you're, you're in rehearsal when you're in college, you're gonna go out, you're gonna test the waters when you're abroad. And then we're gonna get you like one more year to really bring you up to speed before you, you go back out. So it's structured like the first two years, you're giving them the basics, what they need to know before they go out. And then like junior year, you send them out and then senior year, you come back and be like, all right, what did you learn? How do we apply it? How do we change? Mm -hmm. For many students, that's the path. We also have a January term where it's only four to five weeks long. So students um, might suddenly go to Ghana and study dance in Ghana for five weeks. Uh, or I'm working on one, hopefully in the future, I can't knock on wood because of the microphone, uh, to go to DC and to study, again, we could go to Arena, we can go to the Shakespeare, but also to the NEA and to Americans for the Arts and learn more of the political process in order to have a strong foundation for the arts. So those are the sort of mini trips that we can take out with students and expose them also. I mean, for me, it's, you know, how do you learn, how do you adapt to being a new city? Uh, you know, how many times are you, are you ready to have that career that might make you move 15 times. And so I think it's a great opportunity while you have the support structure of a college to be able to kind of test it to say, here, I know I adapt quickly to new environments, or maybe I don't, and I need to build up some skills there. Yeah. And how did that work with COVID when the appeal of your university is that you send students to other countries and now there's a global pandemic and they can't go anywhere? Right. So, uh, it, it's really stopped all operations. Uh, here, here's the other thing. So you take risks and there's always payoffs, right? Uh, or there's always costs that you must pay. And so for us, it's, we didn't have enough housing. We're built on the model that one sixth of our student body is always gone. So suddenly we're like, um, we don't have your dorm room available right now. Uh, so we had to really move quickly, get some hotels, honestly. Uh, and, and to find other housing options for students. And uh, some of our students had a harder time getting back, absolutely. Uh, but luckily, because it's what we focused on, we have a big office of support staff uh, to make sure that folks were able to travel. Uh, I did have a former student, so not part of my university, but former student who had just started a cruise ship three days before COVID. She had, I think, one performance, and then she was on that cruise ship for six months. They got the oh passengers gosh. off, so the crew could not leave. So because of where they were docked and then they made it back to international waters 
and then they had to switch to another cruise ship. But she was, you know, it was just the staff. Um, so she was there for the shows and sitting on on her cruise liner. She could post stuff. We were all following her. Um, but yeah, talk about, I mean, truly that sort of no man's land uh, of you can't go anywhere. So, uh, so right now, what we've done instead uh, is a number of virtual internships, uh, doing more connections with those partner schools elsewhere uh, for online communication. It's not the same. It's not what we want for our students. Uh, we really feel like it's so much happens outside the classroom, but it's something that we have essentially backlogged it so that as already this spring, we've already sent students abroad. Um, there are certain parts of the world that will accept Americans at this moment. And then we're really ready for the fall to the point of faculty saying, I might have reduced courses in the fall because I know so many students are suddenly gonna be going out provided that the vaccinations occur as we hope they will. Right, right, right. And then what made you, cause you speak with such passion about academia and education and teaching your students. What made you realize that maybe you didn't wanna stage manage professionally that you wanted to teach? I at first rebelled against academia, uh, probably from dropping out of grad school, but I also just felt like that's enough of that. Uh, let me go have kind of real impact. And I really love, and I still work professionally. Uh, I was in tech on a show up until COVID closed it, uh, working at Triad Stage uh, in Greensboro. And uh, so I never want to give up the professional work. I never, I, I, I cannot wait to retire from teaching so that I can go back and work professionally full-time. Having said that, I don't know about you, Katrina, but I've had multiple burnouts throughout my career, right? There are going to be those shows that just drain all the life from you and question, make you question, is this truly the love of your life? And I will say that what is great about working and teaching is to see people discover it for the first time. That even though it sometimes feels like I'm telling a story and every year I have to close the book and open it back up to chapter one and begin the same story again, but to know that there's new audience, there's those new students who are just now, the fire is being ignited in them. They're seeing their Hamlet or whatever show tells them that this is what they need to do. So that's really what drives me forward for teaching. Um, and I also, you know, we all respond to the experiences we had and try to make them better for the next generation. So for me, there's a lot of problems in academia. There's a lot of privilege. There's a lot of, of just poor examples being set uh, and maybe not always by people who were successful professionally. And so for me, I feel like I need to be here right now to show folks how it can work or should work. And I have to also say, I'm getting to the point where some of my former students are now teachers themselves. So if anything, my hope is that I've kind of inspired others to kind of light that same flame and make it a better world. So that's the goal at least. Thank you. And then I wanna roll that into the SM survey, which feels so academic because it's actual research, which I went to a math and science high school and I was like, I'm never touching statistics. I'm never doing research. This is terrible, why? And you went, no, let's apply research to theater. 
let's do this. So, so here's how the SM survey worked, uh, started. So it started back in 2006. And you know what it started with, Katrina? Me being pissed off at East Coast stage. Because <laughs> I was sitting at conferences and being told, well, you know, this is how it's done. And I was like, oh, really now? Uh, and uh, and I won't give all the blame to the East Coast. The West Coast was also to blame. Uh, and, and just being told constantly of like, well, you know, the professional way, the model is, this is how things are done. And, and I, you know, you just can only take so much of that before you go, maybe we should just ask people, is that how it's done? Instead of telling people that's how it's done. And so the idea of the survey, this is pre any social media, Facebook wasn't around yet. And uh, technically it was, I believe oh, I joined it? in 2005. You were just too old. I was a college student, so I could join. <laughs> Thank you, Katrina. And this is the end of my conversation with you. Uh, no, so, uh, I, so, so for the home viewers, yes, the correction is Facebook began 2005. I must have still been on MySpace or something. And uh, that at any rate, it was so hard to get stage managers together. And so the idea of the survey was, let's see if there are regional differences. Are there geographical differences in how stage managers function? Are there other dis deciding factors? Is it age? Is it gender uh, that might offer how we do things differently? And moreover, how do we find those innovations? Because I, up to that point, especially without much internet connectivity, it was so hard to see who had even something as simple as better paperwork? How do you share paperwork? That you could sort of track someone's stage management lineage by looking at paperwork and like, ah, I can tell you studied with um, Cheryl Mintz who has amazing paperwork. You studied with her and I can just tell from your own, there's some DNA in there. Uh, or that, you know, Joel Veenstra's paperwork, uh, you know, all these great stage managers kind of thinking, where, where do you pull this from? And so, uh, I wanted to see, I want to see like where can we essentially create a um, depository of how we can improve our field uh, because we should not go, this is good enough. So launching the first survey and of course, what was beautiful was I had these assumptions and so many of them were wrong. And that was great because of what I thought was, oh, maybe this is a standard practice or maybe other people are, are fascinated. One of the best uh, errors uh, I would say is, I was convinced in 2006 that we were so close to moving to digital scripts. I thought, you know what? 2007, 2008 tops, we're all gonna be on digital scripts. And uh, the incredible pushback to that, uh, that there were certainly the early evangelists who were pushing some ideas, uh, but so many people were concerned about usually the mundane issues of um, if a file gets lost, if power goes out, so on and so forth. Of course, those are still the mundane issues of if the prompt script goes missing, if, and, and can you explain to me why our, our natural predator is a bus? But if we're hit by a bus, <laughs> that suddenly, you know, what happens? So, and, and I have to say, I ran the survey in 2006. I did it again in 2009. At that point, decided to do it biannually, so 2011, 2013. And it just never caught until rather recently. And we're not even at the tipping point yet 
Um, but that was something that I, I thought looking in my crystal ball, like this is the next big thing. And it, it just didn't pan out. Here's the other next big thing that hasn't happened yet, but I want to happen is I want to have a video display onto the glass of a calling booth. So you can get this now in some high-tech cars where you can actually have the displays projected up. But if we could have scripts and our cues on the window so that you're looking through your cues at the stage instead of looking up and down for those of us who call from booths versus backstage. That's the next thing that I wanna see, but I clearly have to win a lottery and prototype the thing, so. It's a very niche audience. Yeah, that see that's, that's the problem with all technology for stage managers. That's why you know so much of the software we have to hobble together from other fields. Um, I was working on a project called the Stage Manager Simulator and invested years and, and quite a few thousands of dollars in it and got it to work, but I could never afford to bring it to market. Um, so the Stage Manager Simulator was, uh, you would watch a video of a show, you would have a PDF of a script, you would wear a headset with a microphone on your own laptop, and it used uh, speech recognition software so it could tell exactly what cue you called and when within a tenth of a second. And so it could help you as you were training to be a stage manager. Because there's all this, you know, we always have this fear of like everyone sitting around waiting for us to learn the cue. And especially if you're new to the field, you feel like nothing's happening while you're trying to learn the call. This was a way that you could practice the call cueing. Um, and yeah, I got it up to 95% accuracy, which was great because it meant the last 5% would really just be finessing it. But because of the software that it required and the fact that how many stage managers would purchase it, it was going to always be above $300. It's like, I wouldn't spend $300 for this. And I don't want only stage managers who could afford it to actually have the benefit of it um, because we are such a niche market. So that's, that's why we kind of borrow and hobble together all these tools from other fields because we just don't have the purchasing strength yet. Right. Now I'm like, what other fields can we convince they need the stage manager simulator? Like who else? Right. Well, so I had some ideas. I was like, oh, how about referees and umpires in sporting events? Could you practice that? Because it's the same basic, you know, you, you watch a video, you respond in real time. Um, and it, it has gotten cheaper now that speech recognition software is much more easily adapted, but we're not there yet. I think it's still... Over, if I try to launch it today, it'd still be over $150. And until I can get it down to $20, I, I just don't think. Um, right. And honestly, I, I had a stage manager come up to me and give me a critique that still resonates with me and why I, I'm not pursuing it right now. And she said, aren't you afraid that then other stage managers will just copy your way of calling and not learn their own way of calling? Like, are you going to standardize cue calling? And that really struck me uh, because, you know, it, you kind of assume like, well, how much variation, but there is variation. And in that variation, there's innovation. So maybe we shouldn't all be calling the cues the same way. Same way that all of our paperwork shouldn't look identical. Um, there should be that not only just for personalization, but for, for the innovation opportunities of what am I doing that's going to be a little different, a little bit better, and then others can adapt from it. So, so for that reason, yeah, I'm a little afraid that could there be one way and then who gets to decide that that's the best way to call a cue just because that's what the software thinks. Right. 
Why did you decide to do the return to the stage survey? Return to the stage is a 18 month uh, study began. The first survey was in July of 2020. And then uh, we had one in January of 21. There'll be the last one in July of 21 and then the reports. Return to the stage looks at the impact of the pandemic on the performing arts in workforce. There's a number of really great studies out there about the impact on organizations. Uh, but Meg Friedman, uh, who's based in Connecticut, contacted me and said, you know, there's just nothing that's really looking at how it's affecting workers. And so she contacted me in April of 2020. So just kind of a month into the pandemic. And at that point, I was feeling really powerless. You know, like I lost my show. Um, I still have my teaching gig, so I was very fortunate that way, but obviously it wasn't the same. And, uh, you know, we all are missing it. So I wanted to do something. And this was a study that we were able to draw upon kind of the, the platform, the, the foundation of the SM survey and create this broader survey. And so Return to the Stage uh, reaches all fields of performing arts workforce. So if you're working in fabrication of equipment uh, or costume construction, or you're an audio engineer or any of these, or you're an administrator, um, you're able to take part in the study. And Return the Stage really looks at kind of the human impact. Um, so we looked at employment, but we also looked at, uh, it's called the Pulse Study. It's by the Census Bureau and it measures uh, levels of hopelessness or despair uh, or anxiety. And so what was really fascinating is we took the questions that the US Census Bureau asked everyone, asked all Americans, and then we asked those specifically of performing arts workers to see how we were faring, because in some ways we're very resilient. We solve problems, right? We, we, we make things out of nothing. Um, but at the other hand, um, you know, there's, I guess, maybe a minor argument of which industry is suffering the most. I can't imagine you can't have the performing arts in that discussion. Uh, and so what the study did find was, yeah, that we actually uh, are faring far worse in terms of our mental health, at least according to these questions. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that we seem to be recovering earlier than the general population. And it might be our level of optimism. It might be it might be because we're just ignorant about how bad things are, and we're like, oh, it's gonna be fine any day now. Uh, but it's it is encouraging to see that um, whereas we were behind everyone back in July, in January of 2021, we're still behind, but we're kind of reached the low point and we're beginning a rebound. Um, I do also actually, as you bring this up we also separated out different categories to see are there um, groups of people that are responding differently or having different experiences. So we looked at age and we looked at gender, but probably the biggest uh, divide was in terms of performing arts workers who identify as BIPOC. And so in asking that question, uh, not only were BIPOC performing arts workers registering lower um, levels. So in other words saying, feeling more levels of anxiety or hopelessness, uh, having that lower experience than other performing arts workers and than the general BIPOC population. So 
Black uh, and Indigenous people of color in the United States already are experiencing uh, an outweighed level, according to the Census Bureau, um, are, are experiencing these greater levels of distress. And if you're in the arts, you actually have even uh, worse experiences in terms of these levels of distress. Um, and so to recognize that, because uh, I, I don't know if everyone is recognizing the disparity of the impact. Um, and so hopefully a study like this um, can show us that. And we also recognize that, you know, as performing arts workers, many of us move around a lot. That has also been eliminated or greatly reduced. Uh, the number of people who travel, not only travel for work, but move and live perhaps in multiple locations over the course of the year. If you're a more seasonal worker, what is that gonna mean in the long-term? So, so the, the study to answer your question uh, was really about, is there anything we can do to help right now? And uh, can we at least measure what the impact is so that moving forward, we can see who needs the assistance um, and within the performing arts, what we can do for ourselves. Yeah, I wanna thank you for doing that work because because of the society we live in, we really like data and numbers. Those seem to be the more compelling arguments, but so much of the performing arts is not quantifiable. I think I use that word properly. It's quality, it's, you know right. what I mean? It's mm -hmm. very difficult to put in numbers. So I appreciate you taking this effort to put it in numbers. I know that I personally, for research projects, have referenced your SM survey because there's so little data out there that any, not that it's also not a great survey and I wouldn't use it anyway, right? But it's... <laughs> It's great to have that resource available to put numbers, if people are looking for numbers, to put numbers to it. Yeah, and you know, I think for those of us working in theater and the arts, we're used to the human condition being expressed through an individual story, right? That's what resonates with me. I want, I want to know the story. I want to know that person's experience. Preferably, but, I would like it in a musical with singing and dancing and a ballad. Personally. Well, there you go. Uh, and no, no confetti or glitter. Um, so we need at least two per show. Each <laughs> act ends with the confetti. A, a little cannon. cannon, off it goes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's interesting how in other fields, yeah, it does come. There's so much weight is put upon um, these kind of data points, and so to be able to show that. But you know, inevitably. In writing up the survey, I always have individuals in mind and thinking like, how did their how does their story come out in this? Um, and then to kind of think about who do I not know, right? What what uh, type of individual? So are maybe it's geography, maybe it's age. Who knows? Uh, is there a, someone whose story is not getting shared on the stage? Uh, so hopefully, in some of these studies, they're open enough that we can make these these revelations. Um, what you know, it's interesting on the SM survey, um, it wasn't until 2015 that the survey actively asked for gender identification outside of a binary spectrum. And um, it's very interesting to see what the response rates have been and whether there were a number of people who felt like they were not able to express themselves, their identities in those earlier versions, um, but now there's a better understanding. And we're, we're just about to the point um, where we can do cross tabulations of experiences. Because part of the issue of the study is I never want it to be where you could accidentally identify yourself to others. 
um, that if I picked up only, you know, Montana-based stage managers believe this, well, is there going to be some sort of identification unintentionally? Um, but to see where we're moving as a community of stage managers and being sure that we see each other and that we see the experiences that we have. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've only got a little bit more time with you. So I've got three last questions. One is you said you were born and bred in the Midwest and then you keep leaving the Midwest and then coming back to it and then leaving again. So what is it that draws you back to our beloved central region? And then what forces you to leave? So, well, let's answer the second one. It's always work. I've, I've never left the Midwest if it weren't for a job. Um, and so, and that would probably continue to be the case. What keeps drawing me back and why I'd prefer to be there full time is I feel like Midwestern theater has roots, is aware of its environment in the way that when I've lived in other communities, the shows could be done anywhere. And I don't really feel like they have that kind of community uh, DNA built into it. Um, also, I have to say, I just love the fact that, you know, I, I have two children and so we live in a neighborhood and all the neighbors know that I'm a stage manager. You know, like, that's just normal. It's normal that your neighbor is a stage manager and works in the arts. And, and to have that sort of community base instead of it just all being, you know, people just coming and going and, and not really, not, you know, saying that they're serving the community, but not really understanding the community. And I feel like what can happen in the, in the Midwest is you can really connect and you can become an active participant in a community. Um, and I'm sure that's possible in other regions, absolutely. Uh, and maybe it's a city versus non-city environment. But, you know, you, when you see, say, a Chicago show or you see a show in Kansas City, you know that it's a Chicago or Kansas City show, right? You just, you just know it. Or, or Fort Worth. Yeah, if I'm in Fort Worth, I absolutely know that I'm seeing a show in Fort Worth um, and, and that it's just part of it. And it's not about throwing in some local terms or picking up an accent slightly. It's the sensibility um, and, and to be able to connect with artists who can make it their home uh, and so the, the full-time staff there. So that's the thing that I'm always drawn back to is as much as I do love to travel, uh, I don't want to see tourist shows. I want to see local shows. Um, and so, yeah, how do, I, how do I find that kind of genuinely grounded theater? That's what draws me back. Yeah. I'm Illinois born and bred, so I'm like, yeah, Midwest. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> what are you a nerd about? Like, what is your passion? You clearly have passion for teaching. You clearly have passion for stage management. So what is the non-performing arts David McGraw very passionate about? For me, it's DuckTales because it's amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, you took my answer. No. Um, <laughs> what would, oh my goodness. Um, you know, I, I guess... <sighs> What would be that? Um, I get, I love going down rabbit holes. Like right now I'm trying to learn more about music. And so following to understand minor chord progression, uh, but then another week we'll be picking up fonts. Oh, here'd be, yeah, I love fonts. I could just study that level of graphic design, 
oh my goodness, what is being said that I don't recognize is being said and being able to see that, that fine measure, things like that. And so, yeah, on every show, I actually usually pick a new font, at least for the, the titles. And of course it drives all the, the permanent staff nuts. So like, come on, I'm not gonna download a font. I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. It's saved as a JPEG, you don't have to download it. But the idea that, you know, the way that we portray even simple words, what the meanings that we put behind it. Um, so that's something that gives me some joy, um, some personal joy that no one else has to know about. Um, Averna is my favorite font today. We'll see what it is tomorrow. Uh, and actually I got a compliment on it from a, another artist about two days ago. Was like, they were like, oh, nice fonts in your email. It's like, thank you very much. You, sir, get whatever you want this week. Uh, but Wait, yeah, I have the, a very important question. Yes. Serif or sans serif? Well, you know, it's like saying, well, what is it like saying? It, I don't think you should ever say not one or the other. I, at the moment, I'm on a non-serif uh, kick. Uh, and at the same time, I think, you know, is it about me and springtime and optimism? And are there times where I want more structure in my life and I'll pick up more of a serif font? Uh, but yeah, so there's certain, oh, just the ligatures and yes. Anyway, this could be an entirely different podcast, but I encourage folks to think of, you know, what is that? Oh, you know what this is, Katrina? This is, um, Oh, a conversation I had a while back with folks of, if you put a whole group of stage managers in a room, what are the pluses that all of us have? Like I'm a stage manager and stage manager plus something. And, you know, so we don't necessarily just want to talk our regular shop, but what is it that each of us brings that's a little bit unique or, you know, the type of show that you're drawn to um, for some reason. And maybe this says a lot about my therapy sessions. I work really well with artists that are high demanding um that high stress rehearsal rooms kind of my thing like i it does not bother me as much as it bothers others um and so often i've been put into those situations and so to think about what is it that that either you prefer or maybe does not really throw you as much as others and to think about what is that kind of unique part of you but yeah what what is that sm plus yeah and what brings you joy although you just told me fonts bring you a great deal of joy Surely something, something else, else does as well. You know, um, I will say I genuinely prefer being in rehearsal over being in performance. And I know a lot of stage managers will pick the flip of that. Having said that though, there is nothing like the feeling that everything is in that groove. When you're in the zone while you're calling, there's no better feeling in the world right? You're just hitting all those cues. Everyone's on board. You, you, you're the team captain and everyone is really psyched at how well things are going. And then you, you hit the button and the applause begins. Yeah. Like that, that's what I'm missing right now. That's what's always going to draw me back is that moment. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for spending this time with us. Oh, my pleasure. Places. Everyone, please, at places, we are at places. This was the 13th episode of Waiting for Places, a podcast highlighting stage managers living and working in the central region of the United States. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. It will help other stage managers find it. Also, make sure to click subscribe so you can get new episodes every Friday through July 9th. This podcast was presented by Ethical Rioting Productions.
I am your host, Katrina Herman. This week on Waiting for Places, you heard from David J. McGraw. The stage manager calling places was Caitlin Boddy. This episode was edited by Katrina Herman with graphic design by Nicholas B. Paluha. A huge thank you to Morgan Zupanski, Chris Laporte, and the rest of the Waiting for Places think tank. Fredo Aguilar, Caitlin Boddy, Mary Hungerford, and Jacqueline Saldana. Stand by for the next episode. All right, everyone, we're ready to go. Do I have lights? Do I have sound? All right, and go.